Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this episode of the Food Focus podcast. Trent Kling alongside Leighton Kling. Please be sure to rate us, like us, and subscribe if you enjoy this podcast. It certainly helps out. If you haven't already, be sure and try out the Retail Focus podcast, our sister podcast. And hit us up on Twitter, at Retail Podcast, and we'll try to provide a friendly follow there. In this show, avocados. Are they ruining the world? Also, a couple of other food stories in addition. But first, this, you know about the perks that come with owning your own business, like financial freedom, being your own boss, and having more control of your time. But maybe you're just not sure where to start. All of this could potentially be yours when you open a UPS Store franchise. The UPS Store has over 35 years of franchising experience, and they were actually just ranked the number four top franchise to own by Entrepreneur Magazine's 2017 franchise 500 list the ups store offers that stability that you've come to recognize the support and reputation of a world-renowned brand and a proven business model with all the training and marketing support you will ever need to make your entrepreneurial dreams come true stores are available in both large and small markets across the country and their experts will help find a location that's just right for you Plus, there's financing for those who qualify and special programs for military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner is now. Visit theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus to get started today. That's theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus. We begin our show with Chipotle as their shares falling yet again. Our favorite fast casual is showing that turnarounds and activist investors are not the easiest things to endure. Some investors may start getting antsy as Bill Ackman's promise of a turnaround for the chain is proving to be easier said than done. Let's remember too that several months ago, Pershing Square, Bill Ackman's hedge fund, filed a petition to relinquish shares of Chipotle at any time, making some speculate that they are willing to abandon their position at any moment. Pershing Square is most assuredly down in its taken Chipotle, having bought shares between the high $300 range and low $400 range. Right now, under $300, and queso hasn't helped. Oddly enough, we've talked recently about the nationwide rollout of queso, and it's helped at least in terms of the actual physical numbers, which we'll talk about here in a second. It just hasn't helped in terms of people's perception of Chipotle. We see a lot of reviews are mixed, even if most of the negativity is vastly overstated by major media outlets piggybacking off of clickbait attempts. Chipotle did not really discuss queso during the formal earnings call, other than to say it was still early to see if there was any correlation between sales increases and the cheese, but they did mention once during the call that same-store sales would have dropped without the queso release. There's a lot going on with Chipotle, and Chipotle obviously is one of our favorite QSRs and fast casual restaurants. And you look at Chipotle and their track record over the last couple of years, you really have to worry for the chain. You saw the stock pop on the news initially that Pershing Square Capital and Bill Ackman really had faith in this turnaround. In December of 2016, you saw the announcement of four new board appointments, but Today, or rather this week, a $142 million loss 
on paper that is it's an unrealized loss for their stake in the company but a lot to go through here and you see that chipotle really hasn't gone down as we'll go into their financials they haven't been struggling as much as they were last year overall the company is very healthy and they still are maintaining some robust net income but it's just not what those seeking a turnaround were wanting so we delve into those announced earnings and again it's happened after trading concluded on tuesday the big financial metrics were not all that bad which is interesting considering shares were actually down over nine percent in after hours trading and over 14.2 percent in trading on wednesday so massive loss there for chipotle but Let's start with the revenue for the company. Total revenue came in at $1.13 billion, and that missed analyst estimates calling for $1.14 billion. Sales did grow near the double-digit range, though, up 8.8%. Same-store sales rose 1%, a 1.2% forecast, so a slight miss there, but again, still in the positive territory. And as we transition later on in this story to the full fiscal year's outlook, you can see the company is very hopeful that Q4 is going to be on the upswing Earnings per share was the big story here. Earnings per share of 69 cents and adjusted earnings per share of $1.33. This missed analyst estimates. Their forecast called for $1.63 per share, and that was according to Bloomberg. Restaurant level operating margin was 16.1% in the third quarter of 2017. This was an improvement by about 200 basis points from the third quarter of 2016. The improvement, according to the company, was driven primarily by decreased marketing and promotion expense and labor efficiencies. And this is interesting because we will be talking about Del Taco. They had some labor inefficiencies, so it looks as though Chipotle, at least operationally, is doing well. That marketing expense, that's an interesting thing to consider if you look at the revenue and you look at the same store sales, well, they missed analyst expectations. So perhaps some more marketing spend would actually turn those figures around in a more positive direction. If you look at the why in regards to the poor showing on the earnings per share side of the financial metrics, Trent talked recently about the hurricane damage and what that's going to do for businesses, both in retail and the food service industries. It's more of a story of how bad is it going to affect these businesses, not is it going to be bad? And if you look at the particulars in the fast casual segment, a lot of restaurants rely on that extra discretionary income to be coming in. You see the hardest hit areas on the mainland, they're actually still recovering. And most businesses, especially large firms, are actually up and running. However, that does not mean they're bringing in the same revenue that they would have if the hurricanes hadn't hit. You're looking at a lot of retailers that may actually be benefiting from a lot of the damage. We talk about infrastructure damage, a lot of damages to single family homes. And because of that, you may see revenue and same store sales at Home Depot and Walmart, Lowe's, lumber liquidators. That might increase. And we may be talking about that on the retail focus, but that actually may detract from the revenue potential that a lot of QSRs, a lot of fast casuals, a lot of FSRs bring to the table. And you see that and how that really has affected Chipotle, or at least according to company management. Steve Ells, Chipotle's CEO and now full-time CEO from last fall, said despite several unusual impacts during the quarter, including the impact of hurricanes, we maintained our focus and saw some encouraging signs. So there he's basically admitting that they, yes, they have noticed some substantial business losses, but overall Hurricane Irma and Harvey were said to have cost the company around 13 cents per diluted share so some analysts were actually seeing 
that not being that bad of a figure you're looking at 13 cents per diluted share that would give them closer to the analyst expectations for which they missed chipotle had an apparent malware attack in april that also affected those margins and a norovirus outbreak at one location that we actually covered here on the food focus podcast where an employee knowingly was working while sick this had actually made headlines with the company and really brought to light a lot of the management changes that needed to happen and this was at a time when chipotle was already under a microscope and so this caused some policy changes within the company within the regional management team and this is an important thing to talk about because as it relates to the food industry overall it's sometimes better to be overstaffed trent and in the long run you will save not in the short term maybe you may have employees sitting around not doing a whole lot but who knows this last quarter how many lost sales Chipotle had received due to all of this negative PR. And in fact, obviously we had talked about it, but mainstream media outlet, ABC News, Fox News, all of them were on that one outbreak at that one location. So all of that is very detrimental to the bottom line. And you saw that here with this earnings report. I think one of the interesting things is that we often talk about how it's better to be overstaffed than understaffed because of issues like this, because you don't want sick employees coming to work and that type of thing. Yet at the same time, Bank of America released a note a couple of weeks ago, or actually last week, talking about how Chipotle pays its workers too much and thus people should look elsewhere, and it downgraded Chipotle as a result of paying its workers too much and this is kind of a juxtaposition here on one hand you have the underscoring of the fact that they need to make sure and retain as many workers as possible but on the other hand you don't want to pay those workers and in this circumstance with labor being what it is and employment being what it is you've got to pay your workers more if you want to retain more of them and this is why we always talk about it's kind of funny that a lot of analysts have never worked in the field that they're analyzing before and i think that's kind of what this bank of america issue is a product of saying that they pay their employees too much yet at the same time other analysts are criticizing employment levels for chipotle you can't have it both ways chipotle is simply just a lightning rod in this circumstance there's a reason they pay their employees so much it's because they really do push retention and recruitment initiatives as we've talked about in the past on the podcast just wanted to make that quick side note there was also a chipotle location that was in the news after rats were actually witnessed in the structure itself not necessarily in the chipotle kitchens or anything like that but within their structure kind of out of their control to a certain extent and speaking of cleanliness and food safety new protocols have been laid out for food prep after their issues in 2015 some of their vegetables are now prepared in kitchens this has actually saved the company money food costs were 35 percent of revenue a decrease of 10 basis points as compared to the third quarter of 2016 the benefit of the menu price increases taken in select restaurants during the second quarter of 2017 and decreased paper cost and usage however some of these benefits from the food costs were countered with beef and avocado price increases guacamole which was rumored to be viewed as potentially a substitute good for queso saw its expense rise as avocados increased and this is another circumstance where yet an analyst firm come out a month ago saying beware chipotle because people were getting queso instead of guacamole and that was going to hurt top line revenue well that may be true 
through, it's going to help their bottom line because avocado prices are going up. It's cheaper to produce their queso than it is to produce their guacamole. And in fact, as the expenses of avocados have increased, so too has consumption. So it's not getting better anytime soon. In fact, Americans consumed six and a half pounds of avocados per capita in 2015. That was up from three and a half pounds per capita in 2006. Global demand also rising thanks to Europe and part of Asia and U.S. wholesale prices for avocados almost double what they were this time last year, which is another reason why we've been bullish on the queso rollout. Not only is it getting more people to jump into one of those upcharges, but the fact that it's being used as a substitute good for guacamole may actually save Chipotle money in the long run. Steve Ells, again, the company founder, took over the sole CEO position in December of 2016, as Leighton mentioned, was on this earnings call, and he reminded analysts that he remains committed to the overarching goals of Chipotle, five goals to be exact. The first goal, of course, as it's been for a while now, is to deliver an excellent guest experience. They want to also restore brand trust. That's goal number two, and drive sales as well. Goal number three is foster innovation around the menu and guest experience. We've seen that with the queso rollout. The chorizo rollout, well, that didn't go so well, but it's been replaced by queso, which has significantly more momentum, at least if you believe what they said on the call. Number four goal, restoring their economic model. And number five, strengthening their culture and recommitting to their purpose. Goals two through five all mean that the first goal to drive an excellent customer experience is met. That's all well and good, but it's all in the execution for Chipotle. And in order to execute well, at least this is what Els said on the call, he mentioned that it's necessary to make leadership and board changes. Many of these were brought on by Bill Ackman, and many of these new appointments were executed just within the last few months. So we have to give the company time again in terms of the activist investor, which seems harder and harder to do as many have lost patience. And of course, a lot of this has to do with that media negativity that we talked about to begin the show. And overall, let's look at their outlook going forward. The company said that full year's unit growth will be in line with previous company guidance, but now they're looking to execute on the lower end of that range. The range was 195 to 210 locations. That's a lot for a fast casual that analysts have been criticizing for a long time because of a few locations now not being developed in the fourth quarter. This number will most likely come in at slightly below 195. Again, 195 new locations for the fiscal year. Not at all bad relative to the other fast casual players we talk about some media darlings opening up far fewer stores than that they're looking for another 130 and 150 new restaurants in 2018 this number was a lightning rod as well in the media saying that chipotle is growing at a lower rate but honestly they're reaching almost a market saturation point where now they've just got to grow as the population grows in certain areas they're seeking same store sales for this full year still at 6.5 percent in the positive so obviously that's still a good thing coming off of a very rough 2016 l's specifically mentioned that they've started scrutinizing development more in the past few months thanks to an outside consultant now shares went into the 295 dollars range in after hours training on tuesday from 324 dollars per share before the report came out shares have brushed against 500 dollars but started out the trailing 52 week period at around 405 per share you see that Chipotle has now fallen to around the $274 range in Wednesday's trading. Overall, Trent, all of those sentiments 
brought on by Steve Hells. Very positive. This company is still headed in the right direction, I believe. I am no longer a long-term shareholder in the company I did sell not that long ago. But if you look at the company and its fundamentals, they know what they need to change. It is just a matter of execution for the management teams that have been put in place and the new executives that are in their lined roles as well. We move on and we stay in the Mexican cuisine segment and earnings as well. Del Taco reported third quarter results which indicated that the QSR Plus operator may have to hike up some pricing in the near future to meet their margin demand. Del Taco was our first stop in Los Angeles for Shop.org. Trent and I both ate there. We actually were very impressed with the service overall. You see that a lot of the locations in the Los Angeles area are very small, so I am curious to know their revenue per square foot. But the chain has been really good about jumping on popular hashtags, utilizing social media, and annualized events such as National Taco Day. Here recently, their promotions have really fueled what we think is a sustainable fan base that makes them in a competitive position versus Taco Bell and the other players in their space. We look at the results for Del Taco. Luckily for Chipotle, there are others that have failed their shareholders here in the recent past. Del Taco was actually down in terms of the share price after this call last Thursday. Unlike Chipotle, however, they released on that Thursday of last week as opposed to this week. We see that revenue in the 558 unit chain increased 6.3% to $111 million and net income increased as well 5% to $5.1 million or 13 cents per share. This actually met analyst expectations along with the revenue jump. We see same-store sales jumped to a positive 4.1%. With that, they now have a record of positive company same-store sales with 21 consecutive quarters and of positive system same-store sales coming in at 16 consecutive quarters as well. So the company, obviously, you can take a step back and you could see before we mention anything else operationally about the company, they are firing on all cylinders. Let's remind our listeners that they do have a new CEO who is very bullish on the concept and growing their unit count. And we'll talk about this throughout the Midwest and Southeastern parts throughout the United States. We see later in the call to analyst management acknowledge that they did well, despite being up against great quarters from last year. So let's keep in mind the company has had those positive consecutive quarters and they're coming in against very tough comps in some areas of their business. Carnitas, the limited time offering, they said drove very high demand and they featured very high check averages as well. Is viewed for the management teams as more of a premium price point product. Contribution margin for the company did fall a bit. And the company pointed to labor increases as well as increases on food and paper. And if you go back to the Chipotle call that we just covered, labor and paper actually saved Chipotle money. Food, however, is the one thing they both have in common there. And to further contrast the two, we look at the quote from John Capasola, their CEO, cost pressures during this quarter, he said, driven particularly by food inflation, led us to revise our annual guidance, he said in a statement. And if you look on through those earnings transcript notes, and we did that for you, they mentioned specifically avocados. And here we are with avocados. And Trent explained the pricing pressure that we've seen from avocados, the demand globally for avocados that has just been skyrocketing. That, of course, is going to cause these businesses to really squeeze out these margins. And if you're not going to increase menu prices, you are going to see an effect on the bottom line. And I think that's what you have here with Del Taco. The company also reduced the top range of its earnings forecast 
for the full year between 52 cents and 54 cents a share down from the top range of 55 cents. We mentioned CEO John Capasola, Trent. He had a lot of confidence coming into this conference call, and he said that they've actually transitioned well into becoming a true QSR Plus operator. Again, a QSR Plus designation, more or less what Del Taco's been aiming for over the last several years. We've talked about the barbell menu there before, but what they want to provide consumers is both a value proposition and also a quality proposition. And because of their repositioning as a QSR Plus, they've seen the average check grow as a function of not only some of their premier products, but also limited time offerings and promotional support. But Del Taco has been able to reposition themselves as a QSR Plus without alienating their core customer group. And when you see survey responses that the company has gotten back, people are responding favorably year over year to the speed and overall happiness with the Del Taco concept. Now, some of this has to do, of course, with a fresh look from the leadership group. And another thing that we discussed recently was their rollout of queso. And a lot of analysts were more bullish on Del Taco's queso than Chipotle's queso. Leighton, we've tried both things, and I think both of us are still in the camp that Chipotle Chipotle's queso is probably better in terms of quality, but guest acceptance of queso and also feedback was pretty strong from Del Taco. And this was evidenced by queso factoring into their regular entree orders at approximately a 7% rate in each of the first six weeks since its launch compared to the approximate 2% mix from their legacy nacho cheese products. So that means they're seeing more add-ons from customers, more growth, and again, that's growing that check size. They're including it in more products too, and it seems to be paying off, whereas people are still hesitant, to, at least from reports, to include queso in their Chipotle burrito bowls. Although, again, if you're on that Chipotle earnings call, it does seem as though queso will be a driving force in the next quarter. I want to finish up this story by talking a little bit about Del Taco's development. Four restaurants came online during the third quarter, two company and two franchise restaurants so far in this quarter. They've opened another three company-owned restaurants and they have 11 additional restaurants under construction comprised of two franchise and nine company-operated locations. They're looking at adding 23 to 24 total restaurants for the fiscal year with a 65-35 split company-owned versus franchise locations. Continued growth in their bread-and-butter region out west where they talk about the reliance of established franchisees. And while they don't have many established franchisees in the southeast or midwest, they did speak of some brand recognition there. They've been really touting some of their new locations in Georgia, in Oklahoma, and of course their franchisee in Michigan. Aside from the research we did regarding earnings, we noticed that they're featuring recent openings on their store locator page, which is something that they hadn't done of a whole lot in the past. We see a new California location has emerged along with Norman, Oklahoma, which is southern Oklahoma City for those who are unaware. Also the location of OU and a Nevada location. They now have four total locations in the Oklahoma City area. So they're trying to grow out there as with their holdings in Georgia, Michigan and in Colorado. All told, you know, Del Taco is a company that's seen a lot less scrutiny from analysts, despite the fact that they're not quite growing at the same rate.
great that Chipotle is. Chipotle, for all the flack that they've gotten for tailing back their growth plans, they're still growing at a higher rate than Del Taco overall, and their average unit volumes are also higher than Del Taco on the whole. That's not to say we're not bullish towards Del Taco, but the reason we have these two companies here in the first block of the show to talk about is to kind of juxtapose how both of these companies are, are still in a growth phase. It's just people seem to look at Del Taco a little bit more favorably than they do Chipotle. We mentioned it at the top of the show, but you know about the perks that come with owning your own business, like financial freedom, being your own boss, having more control of your time. All of those are benefits, but maybe you're just not sure where to start. Perhaps if you look at the details, a great place to start would be opening a UPS store franchise. Absolutely. Trent and I have both run businesses in the past, and for the UPS store, they have it all outlined for you. So if you're timid, you're a little unsure, you're a little risk averse about opening your own franchise, the UPS store may be just right for you. The UPS store offers stability, the support and reputation of a world-renowned brand, and a proven business model with all the training and marketing support you'll need to make your dreams come true. Stores are available in both large and small markets, so there's really no excuse for you to at least look into opening a UPS store franchise. Plus, there's financing for those who qualify and special programs for those military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner is now. Visit theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus to get started today. That's theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus. We go into the monster that is McDonald's as they actually had their earnings report, but we will delve into more about what their earnings report had to say in regards to some menu changes. As McDonald's finally rolls out plans to replace their dollar menu, the announcement came as part of the earnings call that I just talked about on Tuesday, October 24th. We look into the background here. In the not-so-distant past, the QSR giant claimed that the McPick 2 was their official value platform, despite no consistency among areas or franchisees. And this is something we had really highlighted in the past before, for McDonald's, a lot of inconsistencies, but it seemed to work. The dollar menu went away in 2014, a move we suspected had a lot to do with placating franchisees frustrated by shrinking margins and directives to place negative margin items on the menu. The McPick 2 did have some inherent advantages. Annoying jingle aside, the platform allowed franchisees in different markets to place items in the McPick 2 they were comfortable with. So again, franchisee variability, a lot of flexibility that they were given there to manage their locations. The McPick 2 allowed for regionality and promotions as well. Certain markets in the South sold sausage egg biscuits for two for three and others sold the McMuffin in the same deal. In addition to regionality, the McPick 2 allowed for seasonality as well with the filet fish being offered around Lent and so forth. However, all of the benefits from the franchisee's perspective, there were inherent problems from the customer's point of view. Consistency was a major issue with restaurants owned by different franchisees in the same exact market, sometimes offering different deals. Again, back to that inconsistency point, even on the price point, there was confusion amongst customers. Certain markets had the McPick 2 for $3.00. Others, four for five. Again, things we have highlighted here on the Food Focus in the past. It wasn't a promotion that continued across dates either. Some parts of the year featured no McPick 2 promotion whatsoever, leaving value-conscious consumers out of the equation entirely. Largely, the issues surrounding the McPick 2 value platform were covered up by other 
corporate initiatives that we've also talked about, like All Day Breakfast and All Day Breakfast 2.0, which has been a major success for the top line of the company. However, despite positive traffic numbers fueled by drink limited time offerings, McDonald's seems to be looking towards a future traffic driver once momentum stalls. This is one difference with McDonald's under Steve Easterbrook versus the old management regime. They were too often late to react to trends and they were really playing catch up a lot of the time. And now you see the company trend really evolving. And now you see this new menu rollout. It looks as though talking about all cylinders here, they're hitting on all of them. And you see that reflective in their share price today coming in at around $163 a share. Let's talk a little bit about this new menu and their approach to the value platform rather than take a blanket approach as with the previous dollar menu where everything is a dollar or everything is a single price point. This iteration will actually offer flexibility to franchisees and perhaps this is one of the reasons that franchisees have bought into the extent that they have. Bloomberg reports that over 95% of franchisees are on board with the new dollar menu. The menu will feature items for $1, $2, and $3 price points, which provides more clarity than other value menus. You look at Wendy's for an example where you have variable and unrounded prices that are kind of all over the map. Here, they're rounding them off $1, 2 and $3. And McDonald's has seen success with rounding off their price points as with the drink promotions that they claimed gave them a stronger summer. Again, it was a $1 drink, not a $0.99 cent drink. When I look at this menu, it's akin to Taco Bell's rollout a few years back of their $0.79, and $0.99 cent value menu. Burger King has had similar value platforms in the past where you have three price bins, but for the first time, McDonald's going one, two, and three. They're hoping to unveil the platform in the first two months of 2018. Details are still sketchy, but we would assume that this platform retains aspects of the McPick 2 platform that franchisees enjoyed, including that regionality that Leighton talked about, including the flexibility on a franchise-by-franchise basis. With some of that numerical consistency, the $1, 2 and $3 that customers demand. So no longer will you have the McPick 2 for 5 in one market and a McPick 2 for 3 in another, and maybe in yet another a McPick 2 for 4. This rollout, one step closer to the full development for McDonald's of the barbell menu, which is something that they've been seeking. We see movement towards the upper end of the barbell with their premium sandwich line. And again, that was something they noted momentum towards in the call this week. We often talk about this barbell concept. We talked about it at the beginning of the show or in the first half of the show. Del Taco's used it with great effect. They've managed to grow receipt sizes and a fairly large following using this barbell menu because they're catering to two different sources and mcdonald's will no doubt hope to do the same with this new value platform speaking of that earnings call let's quickly go over their results which we considered to be above average u.s third quarter comparable restaurant sales went up 4.1 percent overall worldwide comps up 6.0 percent some of the emerging markets saw massive growth 
for McDonald's. The consensus estimate among analysts was an increase of 3.4% in the U.S., so they beat that by a not insignificant margin. The company credited their $1 drink promotion during the summer, as well as delivery services and their premium sandwiches for growing receipt size, as well as the McPick 2, interestingly enough, for the increase. We should note, though, that the McPick 2 did exist in the previous year's third quarter, whereas the drink promotion wasn't pushed quite as heavily. Delivery and premium sandwiches, obviously a fairly new thing for McDonald's, so it's tough to see the McPick 2 influencing top line truly all that much. Even better for the company was their earnings per share, which came in at $2.32 this year compared to $1.50 last year. Although some media outlets credited the drink promotion for driving this increase, the company admitted that the massive jump was due mostly to the sale of their businesses in China and Hong Kong. Longtime listeners of the podcast will recall that McDonald's sold their businesses off in China and Hong Kong for a pre-tax bump of $850 million. That's reflected in this earnings per share number. Their margins did increase, at least for the time being, as a result of their refranchising program. So top-line revenues decreased overall because they refranchised so many restaurants in the last quarter. For new listeners to the Food Focus, anytime a company sells a restaurant to a franchisee, the company then thereafter can only include franchisee royalties and fees in their top-line revenue versus restaurant sales as a whole. So sometimes when a company will go on a refranchising effort, you'll see top-line revenue decrease, but you'll see margins increase. However, McDonald's did mention expectation of reduced margins going forward as they roll out new initiatives. They talked about transitioning more restaurants to fresh beef and the cost inherent there. And also, they want to bolster staff numbers and training to assist with new pickup and delivery options at some of their new and fresh restaurants that have some of those kiosks, that have some of those order-ahead options. So McDonald's wants to be sure that their staff is retained and trained and they expect additional costs to this extent in the next few quarters. Just another fast food or QSR restaurant that's talking about prices going up in order to retain employees and keep them around, which is probably another reason to be skeptical of Bank of America's note of Chipotle that we mentioned earlier in the show. Generally speaking, this is a company now in much better shape than when Easterbrook took the reins. This is supported by yet another dividend increase for the company, this time 7% to $1.01 in the fourth quarter. And we see their dividend is now around 2.5%, obviously dependent on where that share price goes on the day-to-day basis. What you look at the continued buybacks for the company, they obviously are valuing their own shares at a very valuable price point. And if you look at the all-time highs the company is bringing in, you really have to scratch your head. Is the company worth more than that market cap of $132.5 billion that it is as of this week? A definite leader amongst other QSRs in the United States and globally for that matter. Well, we transition to our last story and we will be highlighting three things that I love and that are dear to my heart. One being food, one being retail, and one being commercial real estate. This is all going to be brought together thanks to the Whole Foods Amazon merger that we've been talking about and that everybody has been talking about over the last few months. It is apparent that grocers and other general merchandise retailers are trying their hardest not to accept the synergies that that merger has brought to the table. While it is unclear how old some of these lease agreements may be, Whole Foods was probably surprised to find out, just as we were, that some of the odd stipulations in once standardized contracts are now being brought forth. 
With that, we go to a report by Reuters last Tuesday, really highlighting some interesting stipulations that a lot of general merchandise retailers such as Target have put in to certain lease agreements within shopping centers. This is actually going to be interesting for the long term because Whole Foods is just now trying to utilize some of the synergies that was promised by Amazon months ago. Obviously, the coming together of the two companies has caused a ton of speculation with industry analysts and everybody as far as podcasters like us to people that are just actual casual customers of the two, really wondering what they're going to bring to the table here. And you see that lockers, those Amazon lockers and delivery options were all talked about and they're still being talked about. And if you look at company statements, Amazon is actually wanting to put Amazon lockers in a lot of the Whole Foods markets, if not all of them. But it turns out with inside commercial lease agreements from some of these old legacy retailers, you see that they're actually trying to prevent some things that are more omni-channel for their partners, their neighbors, if you will, in the retail sector. And so if you're at Whole Foods Market and let's say next door to you, you have a Target, but Target said they'll only commit to the lease if the retailer next door only operates in a certain way that may actually preclude Amazon and Whole Foods coming together to offer those lockers and then also some retail options. According to Reuters, again, one Whole Foods location, the retailer was limited to displaying Amazon Echo devices. So a lot going on in this realm, and it is very interesting to me because I'd actually just spoke to a real estate developer that deals solely with subway locations, and they do have to constantly look at all the competitors within the confines of whatever space they're eyeing. For instance, parking spots. If there's only X amount of parking spots, they have to take into consideration the people they are neighboring against. So if there's only 30 spots in total, well, Subway may demand around 18 or 19. And so they may not choose that location. Little did we know there were stipulations within these lease restrictions that really has caused this to come to the table and be an issue for Amazon and Whole Foods. I, again, I am very surprised that this is happening, but if you look at the landscape, this is something that could actually hurt those very retailers that are implementing this. For instance, Target is now really reinvesting more than ever into their omni-channel platform and now more than ever towards the holiday season. And so some of these things, some of the rules that the company had set previously are actually counterintuitive to the goals they want to achieve mid and long term for these companies. And so I am curious to see if this pans out. But, you know, one of the companies that we often talk about really trying to evolve through this grocery space is Walmart. They've obviously been trying out a lot of things that could actually hinder their retail partners if they're in a strip mall. But this is something that really opened my eyes and something that is almost like a looking ahead story for the retail focus. I look at this and the first business I thought of was Kimco. When we think about some of the newer Kimco developments, Kimco, by the way, for those that aren't aware, is a real estate investment trust that specializes in retail shopping centers, usually open air shopping centers. Kimco's developments oftentimes will feature Target and Whole Foods as two of the larger anchors. And so you wonder if some of the newer Kimco developments, Target's been working this into their contracts and suddenly Whole Foods has to backtrack on the locker provisions. So a lot of dynamics here and you wonder how, again, this is more for the retail focus than the food focus podcast. This may affect 
Kimco's occupancy rates going forward if some of these companies decide that, hey, maybe we want to back out of the contracts or, hey, if a Whole Foods might decide that it might be more economically expedient for them to buy their way out of the contract and put the Amazon lockers in a location elsewhere, that results in an empty store for Kimco. Now, it's likely that we're not going to see too much movement back and forth. And Leighton, as you well know, oftentimes movement in the commercial real estate industry can be glacial. Changes aren't made very frequently there, in part because those leases are so airtight. You have teams and teams of lawyers putting those types of leases together, and it's so very difficult to get out of a lot of those leases that Whole Foods is signing or some of these other companies are signing. So a different and interesting dynamic. We certainly do wonder how it will affect Whole Foods, but moreover, the larger shopping centers going forward. We've reached the final segment of the Food Focus podcast, a segment we call What We Ate, where each Leighton and I tell you about an item that we tried that's new to the world of food over the last week or so, and we begin with Leighton. Well, as a lot of our listeners may be aware, I always try snacks, or at least a lot of the time I try snacks for this part of the podcast. For this time, I tried the Kirkland Signature Organic Salsa, the 38-ounce two-pack. This really caught my attention because obviously it's organic, but It was a little cheaper than a lot of the organic salsas that are out there. And obviously it's in Costco, so you're going to get a lot more for your money on average thanks to that membership. But this price point is around $10.99. And I was very curious if this salsa was going to be a little cheaper, a little more runny. A lot of salsas really don't have the texture and flavor that you would like to see from something that's organic because this comes at a smaller and cheaper price point because it is that privately held brand from Costco. And so with this, this was a medium salsa, so not that spicy. And it had a lot more flavor than what you would see in a typical mild salsa. And the USDA certification is for the organic. It is kosher. And if you look at the ingredient label for it, it's pretty much what you would see in any normal salsa. Organic tomatoes, jalapeno peppers, onions, water, organic tomato paste, so on and so forth. What I'm really here to tell you is that it tastes amazing and it's worth every penny. And to be honest with you, this is somewhat of a value. Costco should be really pushing this aside from their website and their wholesale clubs. A lot of advertising within the clubs comes from demoing. And this was one of the products that I did not demo when I was walking through my local club. But this is a product that I will be buying again. In fact, yesterday I just ran out of the second bottle. Again, it comes in a two pack for around the $11 price point. 10 calories per serving. Per serving, you may ask, how much is that? That's two tablespoons, one gram of sugar, two carbohydrates, 120 milligrams of sodium. And that sodium really is the key here because with a lot of salsas, a lot of companies, a lot of the cheaper companies end up putting a lot more salt in there. And they think that amplifies the flavor. But if you actually have a good blend of core ingredients, you don't need to necessarily do that. So this was my pick for this week amazing. And this really reminds me that I have to go back to Costco and re-up some salsa. Well, I went to Arby's in part because 
My local Arby's was one of those that had the venison sandwich for a limited time last Saturday. Now, I was anticipating something that resembled a venison steak, and this was indeed a very thick cut of venison. Before I go any further, I should let people know I've had venison in the past, so it's not a new meat to me. I'm not so much judging the meat as I am the cooking process. And I know venison can be a lean, tough piece of meat to cook. However, this piece of venison, and I'm not exaggerating for those listening to the podcast at this point, not exaggerating, it would have taken a steak knife to cut through and maybe more than a steak knife. It might have taken a chef's knife. It was almost as though they microwaved the piece of venison because a lot of the fatty tissues in that type of thing hadn't actually liquefied. So it felt like it was microwaved. There were no grill marks on the top or bottom. There was no Maillard reaction to the venison steak whatsoever. And in fact, it was so tough and I couldn't cut through it with the plastic fork and knife at the Arby's itself that I basically had to go at it with my teeth, grab the actual venison patty like an animal and rip it out of my teeth. So that was the only way I could actually get the sandwich eaten. And a sandwich that should have taken me five to ten minutes to eat took nearly twice that. Now, the overall flavor, again, could have benefited from the Maillard reaction or something like that. Some grilling because it tasted microwave, certainly. And I can say without uncertainty, it was not worth the $7 I spent on it. There's a reason it's a limited time offer. Of course, venison, a fairly rare meat. It would take a lot for them to stock all restaurants with it. But at this point, I'm kind of glad that it's not an option for those dining at an Arby's, at least through the one that I experienced. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Food Focus podcast for Leighton. I'm Trent. We're back tomorrow with the Retail Focus podcast, a Retail Focus podcast that'll feature an interview about eBay as we join Racked senior reporter Javi Lieber in a discussion about what eBay is doing to try and keep up with the Joneses in e-commerce. We'll also talk Walgreens earnings and more that's on the Retail Focus coming up a new one on Friday. For the Food Focus, at least so long until next week. We'll see you then. This has been the Food Focus podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.